Today's sermon text is Daniel seven, thirteen through 18. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious And the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Cheryl. Lord, we come to you today and ask you to help us to see, help us to feel, help us to know your presence, your ways. Help us to feel and see and know in such a way that our actions are informed by truth, that the thoughts of our hearts are informed by by truth. We're asking you today, Jesus, to shape us. And so, Lord, as a fellow disciple of all these disciples in front of me, I don't stand over them and teach your word today. I stand among your people, and we fellowship on your word together. I thank you for this opportunity, and I thank you for all of these lovely faces and hearts, and we pray that we would know you, that we would know you, that we would know you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Uh, if you remember, this is, uh, we're in a series right now called Politicking, or Politicking, and um, however you want to say that. And uh, the idea is, is not to answer all of your questions about the upcoming presidential election. That's not my goal. That's not my goal. I'm open to those conversations. If you want to take me out to lunch or a cup of coffee, I'll be happy to share my heart with you. I know there are a lot of people here who are thinking, man, I don't know what to do with this quagmire of American politics right now. I'm not saying that we can answer all those questions, but we can help you think through biblically some of the implications of what you're facing. So I just want to put that out there. If, you're in, if you'd like to have a conversation, if you need some help thinking through this, we are available to meet with you. As I'm sure, and maybe, uh, forgive me, community group leaders, um, you may not want me to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway and ask and apologize later. It, maybe go to your community group leader. And if they can't an- help you answer a question or help you think through some of the stuff that's happening right now in our political world, um, maybe they can defer you to us. But uh, we'd love to help you think through that. But our goal in this series is not to tell you how to vote. Um, our goal in this series is to hopefully after eight weeks, today being the last talk in this series, hopefully after eight weeks, to reshape our heart and our affections when it comes to politics. Because the fundamental problem that I see in our world right now, and I mean our world, I mean our little world in Shelby County and Marshall County and DeSoto County, all this little cluster of counties here in the southeast, is a high 
political obsession that may betray idolatry in our hearts that we don't even realize. An idolatry that is so, so passionate for politics that we actually believe that whatever happens this coming November will determine the destiny and the fate of our country and of our lives. I reject that kind of thinking. That kind of thinking is dangerous. And one of the things that the book of Daniel, and not to mention the rest of the Bible, teaches us is this, that God is sovereign over the nations. That doesn't mean that God sits to the side and watches and one day will come back and execute His ways, although that's true to an extent. But the Scriptures teach that somehow, mysteriously, God is already executing His ways among the nations. Don't ask me to explain that one. If you take me out to coffee and ask me that one, I'm just going to say, hey... Take it up with Jesus when he returns one day. But that's clearly what the scriptures are teaching us. And if you need a reference point for that, I encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message. This week is really part two of last week's message that began. And so if you didn't hear that, I really encourage you to go back and grab that. You can listen to those podcasts for free. We don't charge for that. It's just download the podcast and, and listen to it. But if you remember last week, we spent our, most of our time in the first 11 or 12 verses of Daniel chapter 7. And one of the things we talked about were these four gruesome, horrific beasts that God shows Daniel will be ascending out of the seas. And if you remember, the sea to the ancients represents the unknown. It represents the demonic. It represents death, the passage to the underworld. And so these demonic beasts are coming up out of the sea. And God shows Daniel that these beasts represent four successive empires that will bring much suffering and destruction on the earth. These four empires. And then we ended last week's message when Daniel began to ask God what all this meant and God began to show Daniel that God is enthroned above all of these kingdoms and fire will, uh, uh, fire will issue from below his throne and incinerate all of these kingdoms, destroying in totality the last one yet leaving the others somewhat intact. So it's a partial judgment that God brings on the kingdoms of the world. They are limited. They cannot function outside of God's sovereign wisdom. Yet, they are allowed enough leeway to do good or to do evil. I don't know why that is. I don't know why that is. There are people that trip up on passages like this and we begin to question God. How could a God, loving, good God allow something like this? I can't answer that question. But I can tell you to do something that I'm learning to do years and years into following Jesus and that is lean on your faith. Remember your starting point. Remember when Jesus rescued you. And how visceral the love of God felt as it coursed through your veins. Because we need that as we navigate through this life. 
And then when we face the questions, the mysteries, and we don't know what to do with those questions, learn how to lament. God doesn't want us to like evil things in our world, suffering. He doesn't want us to like that. He wants us to hate it as much as he does. And so we need to learn how to lament. We need to learn how to pray like the psalmist prayed. When he said, why, oh God, why, why? God is somehow in control. So this is what we've been talking through in recent weeks. That, that answer may be unsatisfying to you, and I'll be honest with you, at times it is to me too. But this is why we call it a faith. We can't see everything the way God sees it. We don't know what God is up to. We don't know how the history of 10,000 years ago is connected to history 10,000 years from now. We just don't know, but God does. And God is unfurling history according to his sovereign wisdom. So we trust him. We trust him. We trust him. I'm not saying that fatalism is the answer here. What I am saying is that obsession isn't. Political obsession is not the answer. It's not. So let's go to verse 13, Daniel chapter 7. Let's sit under God's word together. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. This text that we're reading this morning is often used as a proof text for the second coming of Jesus. That day when Jesus will return and he will vanquish everything evil and he will bring about the new creation. However that pans out according to your end times theology. I know there's some disagreement there, but generally speaking, that's how it goes down. This text, though, is not about the second coming of Jesus. This is about something that happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus is not descending from heaven in this text. Jesus is ascending to God the Father. Big diff. It's totally different than, I don't know why I said diff. I never used that word. Uh, totally different, totally different than Jesus descending. Totally different. He ascends to the, just uh, act like you didn't hear that. He ascends to the ancient of days. He comes before God the Father. He ascends to him. We know that this has already happened because when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he ascended to God the Father. He was ultimately glorified, and now with his physical body, he sits at God's right hand in the heavens, hidden by the veil of eternity. But one day he will step out from behind that veil, and he will reveal himself to every eye, every eye. He will do that. But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about Jesus' ascension after his resurrection and his death. That's what this is talking about. So keep that in mind. Verse 14. And to him, the Son of Man, who we know is Jesus, and to him was given dominion. Would you say dominion? dominion. He, was, he was given dominion. What is dominion? Authority. What else? Power. What else? Rule, control. He was given all these things when he ascended to the ancient of days. He was given these things. Did he not have those things before? Not in the way 
that it was given to him after his ascension. I can't tease that out. That's, that's an N.T. Wright book. Sorry, I can't do that. So, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. So the dominion that he was given was a domain. And the domain is made up of which people? Anybody know? All people. All people are Jesus's gift from God the Father, a.k.a. the Ancient of Days. All people. This is why in the New Testament, when Jesus is ascending, before he ascends, he gathers his disciples together and he gives them what we know as the Great Commission. He commissions them to tease this out a book that was written 500 or 600 years before Jesus. He says, I want you to go and live out everything that happened. It was foretold in Daniel chapter 7. The, all the peoples of the earth have been given to me. They are my inheritance. Now, I want you to go as my emissaries and announce my lordship over all of creation. Make disciples of people who are not yet my disciples. This is why we share our faith. I know that's not politically correct in some sectors, but this is why we do this. This is why Christianity is a fervently evangelistic faith. We have been commissioned by the ancient of days to proclaim God's kingdom so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and we submit to him. He is king. We live in his domain. Make sense? Okay. Okay. So that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. So when will it end? When will his presidency be over? When will his term end? Never. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now I want to go back and emphasize the first phrase of verse 14 again. The first phrase is, is, and to him was given dominion. The ancient of days gave the Son of Man, Jesus, dominion. He gave him something. Now, we with our modern eyes and our modern thinking often overlook something beautiful and I think quite remarkable about this passage. Um, you see, this was written to a people who lived in a tribal society. You could call it a patriarchal society. Let me tell you, just bear with me for a moment. I won't history channel you to death this morning, but I just want to talk to you just for a second about the mentality of the people that God was speaking to in this text. This is really big, and I think is going to bring a richer understanding of truth here this morning among us. You see... In Israelite culture, and really almost all Near Eastern or Middle Eastern culture, the, uh, the, the life of a family or a tribe revolved around the patriarch, the father. It revolved around him. The patriarch was responsible for the family's economic well-being. He was also the one who enforced the laws inside the family. Now, when we're talking about a family here with a patriarch, we're not talking about a nuclear family. Mom, dad, two kids, and a dog and a cat. Maybe a fish. We're not talking about a family like that. 
We're talking about a family that was made up of a father, a wife, sons, daughters. They didn't have birth control back then, so they had a lot of them. And as this family aged, got older and older and older, the children in that family would marry. There's this um, Hebrew word, it's, it's, called, it's, it's bet-ab. And bet-ab is the biblical word for, um, for the household, for a family household. Well, the family household, again, wasn't a two-car garage and a three-bedroom house. That's not what a household was back then. Back then, a household would have been made up of a mud and brick walled area, compound, that was made up of several buildings that were also made of mud and brick. On the bottom, below the housing, would be where all of the cattle dwelled, the goats, the sheep, etc. Above where the cattle dwelled were several dwelling places where families would sleep and eat. This was the family compound. This was the Hebrew bet-ab. And this household accommodated up to 30 people. Be father, mother, sons, daughters, grandsons, granddaughters, great-grandsons, great-granddaughters. It was often made up of four generations of family members. Four generations. A few years ago, uh, my wife and I were able to travel to Sri Lanka. That is her father's homeland. That's where he's from. And we were able to go there and meet all of their family. She had never met her family. It was a wonderful trip. It's a, just a, uh, it's a, it's a luscious paradise of an island. It's unbelievable. So beautiful. But the hospitality was assaulting in a good way. We would go to people's homes and their family and mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers and great-grandmothers and great-grandfathers would all be living under one roof and they would feed us. I must have gained 15 pounds in the five days that I was there. It was incredible how well we were taken care of. I don't know most of what I ate, but, you know, I didn't get sick, so it was all good. But, uh, but I sort of was able to taste of kind of what life would have been like to the ancients. I grieve that about our world, how cut off and disconnected we are from previous generations. It's, it's really sad. It's really sad. I think it's sort of dehumanized us in a sense. But these people lived in this context. Daniel would have lived in this context prior to being enslaved in Babylon. The ancients lived this way. And so the patriarch was responsible for enforcing law, for caring for his own who were marginalized through war or through death. And so the way that these families would grow would be that maybe a woman who, was, who grew up in her own household, her own bet-ab, she would fall in love or be married off to a boy or a man in another household. She would leave that household, join this household, and that would be her household for the rest of her life no matter what happened to her husband. If something happened to her husband, either through death of sickness and disease or through being killed in war or a battle, the father's job, the patriarch's job, he was responsible to make sure that she was taken care of for the rest of her life. And if he had an unmarried son, he would give that unmarried son to her. He took care of her. This was what the patriarch did. This is what he did. Everyone's identity in this culture was centered around the patriarch, the father in that household. It was centered around the father. But it wasn't all, that wasn't the only thing that identified people as far as their identity is concerned. Their gender was also important and also their birth order. 
So if you were the firstborn male in a household, you were the one who was going to get a double portion of all the father owned rather than the other boys. The other boys would get a portion, but the oldest son would get a double portion. Why was this? Because, man, they were just really greedy and materialistic. No, that's not why this happened. When we hear double portion in our culture, we're like, yeah, more. That's not what it was like in their culture. In their culture, the reason the oldest got the double portion was because he spent his whole life shadowing his father, following him around. And until the day his daddy died, he watched what he did, he copied what he did, he became a master at everything that his father did. So when his father passed away, he would step into his father's shoes and begin to take leadership of the entire household, the entire family compound. Well, he needed a double portion so that he could bring resources to take care of the family. So when we hear double portion in our culture, we think, yeah, cha-ching. In their culture, they think, whoa, heavy responsibility. Stewardship. Care. Early mornings. Late nights. Always looking out, making, because nations back then didn't protect their people very well. So you could be overrun and destroyed and killed, annihilated by another household that wanted all your cows and your sheep and your goats and your wives and your, and your girls. You, had to, you were always carrying that burden as a patriarch. You had to care. It was heavy. The firstborn male would replace the patriarch on his death. The firstborn male would shadow that patriarch his whole life. So when Jesus says in John 5, 19 through 20, these words, it brings entirely new meaning to it when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. Jesus wasn't just saying, man, it's really cool, man. God gives me really prophetic words, and it's awesome. I can see what's going to happen in the future. That's not what Jesus was saying here. Jesus was saying, God is showing me how running the household of faith is going to pan out for all of history. And I'll watch Him. I'm eager to learn from Him. Because all you people, he's saying to the Israelites that God's given me care of, I love you. And I want to make sure that I can nurture you when I get my double portion of everything that I inherit. When you go back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, and it talks about Jesus receiving the gift of dominion from the Father, this is the mentality that Daniel is speaking into. It's people who understood that the Son of Man is the Son of God, the Ancient of Days, and we know the Ancient of Days won't die, so he's not waiting for the Ancient of Days to kick the bucket, but he is waiting for the Ancient of Days to give him an inheritance so that he can care for and nurture and pastor the people of God. This is why God has dominion. God's dominion, God's politics are an expression of his intense love for us. God's politics are a manifestation of how passionately he cares for us as people. God's politics don't lead him to take advantage of us. 
God's politics don't lead to corruption. God's politics are one and the same with love and care. These are the kinds of politics that I like thinking about. This is what I like thinking about. I want to tease out Jesus being the firstborn for another minute here. If you would turn to Colossians chapter 1, 15 and 16. Colossians 1, 15 and 16. Keep this in mind, this household run by the patriarch, that the son, the oldest son, will inherit. Because there are people today with modern eyes who read the scriptures and think, I don't understand this. How could this be? For instance, Colossians 1, 15 and 16 says this. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And there are people who are detractors of the Christian faith and say, hey, see, this proves it. The early Christians didn't look at Jesus as eternal and as God. Jesus was just a prophet. He was just a great teacher. He was someone who showed us things about God. But that's not what Paul is saying here, inspired by the Spirit. He's not saying that Jesus was born and that's where his life began. Because look what Paul says next. He's the firstborn of all creation. Whoa. So he comes before everybody. That's why he said before Abraham, I am. That's why he said that to the Jews. He has always been there. He's always always existed. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. So by Jesus... What things were created again? All things. So molecules a million years ago were made by who? Or if you have a short earth, a short, you know, creation thing, that's cool too. I'm not trying to stir up any, no, good grief. Um, So if if, if 6,000 years ago, if you, the molecules that were floating around, Jesus came before those two. He made those two. All right. So don't email me about that. All right. I'm not going to respond. So, um, So he's the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. So when you read firstborn in Colossians chapter 1, what is it telling us about Jesus? That he is going to inherit a dominion. There you go. You guys are awesome. He's going to inherit a dominion. For by him... All things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now check this out. If he's the firstborn and he's a male, he gets an inheritance from God. What is it that he gets? Look at the last phrase. All things were created through him and for him. Every molecule spinning in our cosmos right now was made by Jesus for Jesus. Raise your hand if your body is made up of molecules. You should raise your hand because that's the right answer. I didn't take chemistry. I didn't either. So just raise it up in the air. Raise your hand if your body is made up of molecules. You were made by Jesus. I know people in your past have told you that you were worthless. I know that you've been abused by ex-lovers, maybe an evil father. You were made 
by Jesus Christ. The raw materials he didn't just put together. He made the raw materials. And he fashioned you on the potter's wheel of eternity. And he was thinking about you, not just a generic human race. He was thinking about you, your name. I am fashioning Jason and Amy and Jonathan and Yuri and Ron and Shane and Denise and Brian and Chrissy. I am fashioning these people. I am making them personally and I am going to give them to a wonderful person, myself. (laughs) They belong to me. You belong to Jesus. And one of the implications that we can pull out of that really quick while we're sitting here is this, that no matter how painful and ugly the history of your life has been, Jesus was there. I know that sounds like sentimental... What was that? I know that sounds like sentimental stuff. That was the loudest cell phone ringer I've ever heard in my life. That was like, I, I know, I know that things have been crazy in your life. I know there have been twists and turns and historically evil things that might have happened to you. But you belong to Jesus. He fashioned you. And just as he is superintending the history of the nations, he is superintending the details of your life. He is writing the fine print. He doesn't just take a bad experience and redeems it. Somehow, he curated everything that you've ever experienced and is using that to make you and shape you into the whole and healed and beautiful person you are, follower of Jesus. Don't forget that. You were made through him for him. Say, I was made for him. I was made for him. I belong to him. I belong to him. Here's what else is pretty cool, though. This is awesome. If you look down at verse 18, Daniel just expresses to God, I'm alarmed by this. This is scary. Because Daniel's not looking back on these sea beasts, these empires that are bloodthirsty and terrible as a, histo- as a thing of history. He's living in the middle of it. He's living in the first two kingdoms described. Babylon and then Media Persia. He's living in those, in, those, in those domains. And God is encouraging him. These sea beasts are going to come out and they're going to bring a lot of pain to the earth. He says, and the implication is, you take these words, you write them, You deliver them to the Jews who are in captivity. I am caring for you through this. I'm caring for you. Then look at verse 18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Now that's really interesting because he doesn't say that the Son of Man is going to possess the kingdom forever and ever. He is. He just said that earlier. He is. But he's not the only one who's going to possess the kingdom forever and ever. That's really interesting. If you would join me in Galatians chapter 4 for a moment. Galatians 4, starting in verse 3. Everybody okay? We're a lot of bouncing around in Scripture today. You cool with that? You good? I'm going to keep doing it. I just want you to let you know that I want want you to be a part of this. So um, Galatians 4, 3 through 7. Man, Jesus, let this connect with our hearts. Um, 
He says this, I know I'm cutting in in the end of a book, but bear with me. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, the elementary principles of the world are dominant structures and mentalities that have power over us. In this context, he's talking about the law of Moses. He's writing to people who grew up under the law. Under the law. They grew up believing that if we follow the law, we're good with God. But here's the problem. The law did not correct what was broken inside of them. Our sinful bent. Our sinful desires. The law is a good way of cleaning the outside of the cup, but not the inside. And Jesus wants something more for us than being good boys and good girls. He wants us to experience the possessing power of the Holy Spirit that will give us bubbling up new affections for righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And more importantly, God himself. And so he says, you were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Again, he's talking to that primitive mindset, that tribal patriarchal mindset. Born of a, uh, born of a woman, born under the law. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. He's, in his mind, he's picturing this massive ancient family compound. The ancient of days is still there, but he's saying, Hey, son, Jesus, I want you to rule the family compound. And here's the thing. I'm going to give you a double portion. And all of your brothers and sisters also get a portion. This is one reason why it's important in texts like this not to say sons and daughters. Not because I'm a misogynist or chauvinistic. That's not why. But because in that culture, the daughters didn't get anything. They did indirectly by living with the son. Married to the son. But in this, in these texts, it's important to remember that only the son got this, which is why it's so beautiful that Paul earlier and later says that there is neither male nor female in Christ. So we are all, women and men, we are all sons of God. All of us are. Not by gender, but by position. We are favored by God. We are preferred by God. We are loved by God. Everything God has belongs to us. That's why it says in the Ephesians that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We are blessed. Now, got to hit pause here. I'm not talking about a health and wealth prosperity gospel. I'm not promising you new cars, big salary increases. I'm not promising you that stuff. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about the stuff that matters. The stuff that will never, ever, ever, ever give you the joy that you're looking for. The deep recesses of intimacy that you can have with Jesus that will change your life now. But here's what's cool. In the age to come, in the age to come, we will have no lack. We will not be poor. 
We will not live from paycheck to paycheck. That's not a promise for now. That's not a promise for now. That's not a guarantee that if you follow Jesus, you're going to get all that now. Are you all track of it? Am I making sense? Is this clear? You sure? Set me straight. Do I need to tease it out more? Okay. All right. So Denise will be honest with me, I think. Yeah, she will. You should hear how she talks to me behind closed doors. So, um, so this, is, this is what we're getting. So um, he's born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that they might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying out, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir through God, an heir. Would you say that I am an heir? I am an, that's what this means. You're an heir. You are a joint heir with Jesus. Everything that the oldest son gets, we get too. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. So I want to tease out just for a couple of minutes, several points. It's in your bulletin. Several points as we bring this series to a close. The first is this. Our destiny is to govern the new creation alongside of Jesus. That's our destiny. This is what Daniel is foreseeing. When all the people, all the saints that follow God, they are also going to receive this blessing. We are going to govern the new creation with God. We're going to govern the new creation. Revelation 5, 9, and 10. And they sang a new song, and they said, Worthy are you to take the scroll, open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have given, made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. In the new creation, this is crazy to me. We will reign with Jesus. That's crazy to me. Second thing, to govern God's way. What I mean by govern, to govern God's way is to cultivate God's beauty in our world. It is to bring about order from chaos, righteousness where there is sin. It is to cultivate our world. And then three, the church is called to begin restoring broken creation now. We don't wait until Jesus returns to get busy cultivating our world. We begin serving our world now. Now, it's a wonderful quote I came across by a guy named, I mentioned earlier, a guy named N.T. Wright. He says it this way. I know that God's new world of justice and joy, of hope for the whole earth, was launched when Jesus came out of the tomb on Easter morning. I know he calls me and you to live in him and by the power of the Spirit and so to be new creation people here and now, giving birth to signs and symbols of the kingdom on earth as in heaven. The resurrection of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit mean that we are called to bring forth real 
and effective signs of God's renewed creation even in the midst of the present age. So my question is this. What are you going to restore? As an emissary of Jesus, as his disciple, I want you to take 30 seconds. Don't start getting your stuff out and putting your stuff away and all that stuff. I want you to think for 30 seconds. What areas of brokenness in your life are you called to be an emissary of restoration to? I want you to write that on that bulletin. If you don't have a bulletin, scribble it, put it in a note in your phone or something like that. What are you called to restore? What is it? If you're wondering what that is, I'm going to ask you, do you live in a neighborhood filled with people who don't know Jesus? They should be eating at your dinner table. I don't care what their lifestyle is, what their politics are, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Love them. Are you working a job that is oppressively evil? In what ways can you bring restoration to the brokenness of that place? Either we believe it or we don't, that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We are no longer enslaved to the elementary principles of our world. We're not. We're not enslaved to mean people. We're not enslaved to the law of Moses. We're not enslaved to demonic hosts and principalities. We are not enslaved to people who have psychological power over us who used to abuse us. We are not enslaved to that anymore. We're not. But you still have to live it out. This is not what I am. This is what I am. What areas of your life has God called you to bring restoration to? What areas are broken that need you to step up to the plate and bring restoration? And that needs to be something that is a prayer of yours every day of the week before you go to work. Maybe it's your family, your marriage. Maybe it's your relationship with a son or a daughter. Maybe it's a relationship with a parent. I don't know. But you are an emissary of the gospel. And God's politics declare that what we need to be obsessing over more than anything else is Jesus is king and how we can proclaim his goodness and his lordship to all the earth. Jesus, I thank you for today. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for all of these really good friends in front of me. Some I know well, some I don't. But I thank you that you've allowed me to speak your word today. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that if anything was said that was not of you that was off. I pray that you would just expunge it from people's memory banks. And I pray, Jesus, that if anything was of you, that it would resound with them and stay with them and that they would carry it for days and weeks and months to come. In Jesus' name.